the Recovery Revolution will be podcast on the Since Right Now Addiction Recovery Network. This is the Unruffle Podcast, episode 130. This is a podcast about recovery through creativity. We live an intentional life. We thrive. I am Sandra Primo. And I'm Tammy Salas. And we are The Unruffled. Hello, Unruffled listeners. We are popping in at the top of the show to share with you several ways that you can help support the podcast. First, you can become a patron of the show by donating to our Patreon fundraising campaign. Please consider supporting our consistent effort in bringing you weekly content on creativity and recovery, all for less than the price of a latte. For just a dollar an episode, you will receive early access to each week's show as our way of saying thank you. If every listener did this, we would be over the moon. The link to our Patreon campaign is www.patreon.com backslash the unruffled podcast. And that's not it. You can share our show on social media or with your friends, and you can subscribe to the podcast and give us a rating on iTunes. All of this helps our little show immensely, and we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Now on to the show. Good morning, my friend. Good morning. How are you? I'm all right. Did you do the morning shuffle? Oh, yes. It was more of a shuffle for sure. <laughs> That's a good way to describe it this morning. <laughs> I was up and perky and ready to go, but some others that count on a ride for, for me were not <laughs> hmm. so perky. Hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, my son was up this morning. Um, he went on an overnight this weekend, so I don't know if he got – he went to bed early last night is the only thing I could figure out, but um, hmm. but Yeah. Mornings are interesting. Yeah, they are. Hmm. So should, let's, I mean, we have a lot of questions. Should we jump in or do we want to talk? Right. So this is an ask us anything episode. We put out a couple of calls for questions uh, in the secret Facebook group and on Instagram. And we got a few good questions. Most of them were directed to both of us. Mm -hmm. There are a few that were directed to us individually, but I think we're going to start with the, Ones that were directed to us both. Yeah, and we can um, we'll go back and forth here and just see how it all works out. Um, this will air on the thirtieth of September at the end of the month. Um, I'll be out of town, and um, I'm just I'm really happy with kind of how September has played out for us with the episodes, and I think um, I don't know. I've been getting great feedback from the show. Also, um, I just wanted to say thank you to the people who have rated and left a review and become new patrons. We did a pitch for that a couple episodes ago. Really, really appreciate it. Yes. Yes. We put out a call and you guys have responded. (laughs) So thank you. Appreciate it. And to people sharing episodes, um, um, please tag your friends. If there's episodes um, on our Instagram page, the unruffled podcast, there's an episode that was your favorite, please tag a friend and let them know about the show. Um, not anyone, no, nobody's done that yet. So I'm hoping just that they can kind of spread the love there and um, get some new followers. And so they can see kind of what we're doing. Yeah. Yes. All right. So let's, shall we dig in? 
Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. So the first question. Okay. The a listener sent us a question. I still find dinners out with friends challenging. I think Tammy's most challenging thing about sobriety is hosting a dinner party or just having people over. If I'm wrong, then I'm curious to know for both of you in all your years of sobriety, what's the one thing you still struggle with? I'm going to let you go first on that because um, I don't have any issues with this. <laughs> but why? Can I ask you why you don't have any issues with this? Okay. Uh, well, if we're taking it apart a little bit and we're talking about being out, you know, going out, um, I think honestly, and, and maybe this would apply to also hosting, you have to be confident in your, be confident and stand strong in your decision. Right. And, and really that's it for me. Okay. I don't, I don't try to go over and over and over in my head what people are thinking about me because all of those things I cannot control. I can only control uh, how I present myself. And if I am exuding just some confidence and that this is a choice that I'm making and this is how I live my life, yeah. then um, that's all I can do. Okay. I agree with that, but I will ask, so I'm, and I'm making this longer than it needs to be. Sorry, Sandra, but if, okay. in early sobriety, did you feel differently than you do currently? Cause you're five years sober. So the right. listening that might be new. That is true. Um, you know, the ceilings were there. If I, if I were to say there was a difference, it would be that I had to practice that more. Yes. So perhaps it wasn't solidified. So I had to practice it. I had to like role play in front of the freaking mirror, like that kind mm -hmm. of practicing. You're right. Yeah. You're right. Um, so how I would answer it is that um, I don't find dinners out challenging. And she says here that she thought that my most challenging thing about sobriety is hosting a dinner party. That is no longer my most challenging thing. I think that was a challenge for me in the very beginning mm -hmm. um, because that was kind of my norm was entertaining four or five nights a week. And with that gone, that became a challenge because I thought I had to still do the thing that I'd always right. done, but do it without alcohol. Now, <laughs> currently we host about one dinner party a year. I, think. <laughs> I am no longer in the same boat. Um, that might be exaggerating, but I, uh, I recently went to a dinner party um, for my birthday at my friend's house and they were all having lovely wine. They had a gorgeous bar set up that had all this beautiful stuff for non-alcoholic drinks. They had seed lip drink there for me. They had mixers and their oldest daughter, Isabella, she was in charge of making mocktails for, um, you know, they're all 16, 17 years old. And for me, and my hostess likes non-alcoholic drinks just because she likes them. Mm -hmm. And so I felt super treated, you know what I mean? And the fact that everybody else was enjoying a glass of wine it did not bother me at all. Mm -hmm. um, so that's not my most challenging thing about sobriety, but I think what she said in all of our years of sobriety, what's the one thing I still struggle with and, or we still struggle with. And so it's no longer that, but a lot of practice, like you said, I will, I had to practice a lot. Um, the thing that I think I struggle with uh, the most now um, 
it's tricky because there's a couple of things and they're not big anymore. I, again, I think because I'm four and a half years sober, these things aren't the same as they used to be. True. So yes. I, I guess I think maybe I'll just leave it at that because we're going to answer more questions. It, dinner parties. Yes. In the beginning, super huge struggle for me practicing. Like you said, Sandra, going in the bathroom a lot during dinner parties mm-hmm. and texting friends doing essential oils in the bathroom, um, reading a mantra card that was in my purse, rubbing a stone while I'm at the table that's in my pocket. I mean, I I was just so uncomfortable in my skin. And the longer that I'm sober, the more comfortable in my skin that I am. Mm -hmm. So uh, we haven't served any alcohol at dinner at my house, but like I said, we haven't really had much. Um, Right. Because don't you think your motivations for having dinner parties has definitely changed? (laughs) (laughs) Sandra, congratulations on the understatement of the year. Yes. (laughs) I no longer want to get everybody smashed so that I can get smashed and nobody will think anything's wrong. But uh, yeah, my motivations completely changed. And it's not that it stresses me out. I think early on it stressed me out, Sandra, to have dinner parties, have people over and wonder, should I serve wine? I don't want to pour wine. I have not purchased wine and or poured wine since I got sober. Yeah, same. Yeah. So for someone who poured it every day for my job, I know you have worked in the service mm-hmm. industry. Like it's, I wanted to over-serve everyone. Um, so yeah, when you take that part away, um, I'm just not that big of an entertainer anymore, obviously. Right. Not, I like having dinner with my family at night, and um, I don't mind going out and having, if wine's around, um, you can always excuse yourself and go to the bathroom and uh, take a minute to yourself. That's what I do, but mm-hmm. I don't know if that fully answers your questions, but yeah, it's not as big a challenge as it used to be for me. Right, right. And who knows, my stories could change Mm-hmm. In a year when I have a new dining room where we can actually entertain friends. And so who knows again, in fact, we're pat, we have, I have like six wine glasses that have, they have dust, a layer of dust on them because they haven't been touched right. in five years. Right. <laughs> and, um, and my husband said, Should, you want to just take these to Goodwill? And I said, well, I, I don't know. <laughs> and that was, that was all I could say. I, I don't, I don't know. That's a good uh, answer. Yeah. Because, um, a year from now w- w- is, will there be the possibility that we will have friends over that will bring a bottle of wine and want something to pour it into? P- possibly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 And, and will I struggle with it? Possibly. I, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, the second question kind of relates to this, Sandra, Uh are there any special tips or tricks for hosting friends who may want a drink? Um, for me, it's still in process because the last time I had someone over, I asked my husband if we could not serve alcohol anymore. And since then we haven't really, we haven't entertained. (laughs) (laughs) So hasn't really, I don't have any tips or tricks other than asking your husband, you know, or your spouse or your um, significant other to partner with you. Um, But what I have done in the past is I put my husband in charge of all of that. Mm -hmm. I used to be the queen of making the bar and making it look beautiful and making all kind of excuses to, like I said, overserve everyone. Um, So the fact that that's not in my purview anymore, that's not what I don't purchase any alcohol. So he does all of that. And 
And, um, for me, that's my solution. Mm-hmm. And, um, he also, the last time that we did this, that we entertained, he stops pouring wine at nine o'clock. Mm. And that was helpful to kind of, and then I started serving tea. Mm-hmm. And at first nobody wanted tea, but I think when they realized that there was no more wine coming out, slowly, right. slowly the table was like, I'll take a cup of tea. I'll take a cup of peppermint tea. This is my only beverage. I can- <laughs> this is the only thing on the beverage menu right now. <laughs> I'm like, there's a water carafe and a pot of peppermint tea that I keep refilling. Mm-hmm. So that is what worked for me that night. And like I said, it hasn't really happened again. So right. um, yeah, that's my only tip. All right. Okay. I will, let's see. Let me, uh, uh, how do you answer the question? How long have you been sober? And I think I won't read the entire thing just because it seems sort of personal to this person, but basically she's saying that she's had a lot of starts and stops and she has friends that haven't. Mm-hmm. And so she kind of cringes a little bit when anyone asks her, how long she's been sober. Mm -hmm. She feels a little bit shameful about it and a little bit like a loser Mm -hmm. um, because she's had starts and stops. Um, You know, for me, um, I had a, uh, I did not have public starts and stops. Right. Um, So, there's more, uh, I had more of a definitive stop. And so I could answer if somebody asked me that, you know, I have a definitive answer. Um, but if I were to, if I wanted to relate to somebody that had asked that question and maybe they didn't have a definitive stop, um, I would say that, because this is true for me, that I had questioned my relationship for al- with alcohol for a very long time. Mm. And, uh, you know, and I woke up many mornings saying I'll never drink again, only to drink again. So uh, while I didn't have a lot of public starts and stops, or maybe once I, you know, made the decision, hit my bottom, um, I did stop, uh, the other time that doesn't discount all the other times where, where I, where I didn't stop. So I love that Sandra. Yeah. That you questioned your alcohol use for a long time. Yeah. I mean, you, you, that, that's a great way to respond. Um, I, when I stopped, I stopped as well. So to answer this, um, it's tricky because I think if I'd had that long, um, you know, or had a stint of sobriety for a time, you don't lose it. I mean, I do believe you don't lose that time no. in terms of like experience and um, know-how and the books you read and all the work that you're doing to get to the final goal. But I do subscribe to kind of how they do it in the rooms. It's like, I need to start with my day one. My day one keeps me tethered to the truth of when I actually physically stopped drinking and putting that in my body. And that's very important to me. I know others feel differently, but for me, that number is very important and being honest about my day one of this stint here, because I could, I'm nothing's guaranteed. 
I mean, I wanted to drink in February this year. I mean, nothing is guaranteed. I would have had to reset my number if I did that. That alone keeps me, Sandra, that fear of doing that or having to reset my counter is enough for me and I use it for good. I use it in a way that I don't feel like it's negative or punishing that, you know, um, I use it to motivate me to not take that drink. Right. And, and I agree with you. It, the fact that it's not arbitrary is very helpful for me. Correct. Um, it keeps me, that keeps me sober. Um, if it were sort of an ethereal number or kind of arbitrary or, or if it, if I didn't place a lot of importance on it, mm-hmm. um, perhaps that would give me a little wiggle room to, to think about drinking again. Yeah. That, that, and that's very, um, like, I appreciate this question because yeah. you and I have talked about this. Like it's, um, I need that accountability. I'm a person who thrives on accountability. Um, again, using these things for good rather than it being punishing, I use it as this good tool. Like, and, um, again, I'm sure if I had to reset my counter, I would be real sad, Sandra, but you know what? I hope that I've learned enough on this journey that I would know that that's how it's going to help me get another long stint. Sure. Hopefully forever, but I would know that I would have to, and that I'd have to begin again, um, in terms of uh, counting days, but that does not mean that I lose everything that I've learned. Oh, um, absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. You can't unlearn and unknow and you know, and you can't, it's impossible. Totally. Yeah. All right. Okay. On to the next one. Um, let's see if you're feeling the pull to come out of the closet as an outspoken sober person on social media. Um, let's see, how has this affected your teenagers being on social media and seeing you out as publicly sober? So this listener wants to be part of changing the social norm, but doesn't want to freak out our teenagers. So yeah, we can speak to this (laughs) for sure. I mean, yeah, yeah, I only have one teen and, um, but I'm, I'm, you know, the process of getting sober being in recovery uh, was a process of being becoming a fully integrated person um, which means you know being transparent so that being said um, you know he's he's gotten he's pretty used to it now Um, but I'll also say that he's also not very interested in what I'm doing (laughs) on social media. Mm-hmm. I mean, if he does on the occasion, occasional moments that he does read something and he brings it up to me, then we talk about it. Yeah. And, uh, but besides that, he, he's just not interested in what I'm doing. Right. At all. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Cause we have, we both have 16 year old boys though. So. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so when I got sober, I was, uh, let's see, Grady was, my son was 11 and I, I asked, I asked, um, my husband, like, first of all, I asked him, my husband first, I know that was not the question, but about me coming out on social media. I live in a very small town, a very small coastal town where my husband, this is where he works and I'm on social media and a lot of the locals, you know, there's a thousand people in Bodega Bay where my husband works. There's 126 here. And we're kind of all linked in on Facebook because of a small community. 
there's a news feed for our area. And obviously I don't share things on the news feed, but um, <laughs> hello. Uh, but I asked him first, like how he felt about me sharing. And he was just like, that's just, I don't care. That's your story. That's not mine. You know, I'm like, but you were intertwined, you know? And he was like, I don't, I don't care as long as it helps you. I'm like, okay. And then my son wasn't on social media. He didn't have a phone until he graduated from eighth grade. So as he went into high school, I asked him about it and he was like, mom, I don't care. Mm-hmm. I'm like, but do you fully know like what I do and do you understand? And, um, you know, some friends of his started following me and it got a little embarrassing for him. So I had to block those friends. And he's like, well, you have a public page, mom. They can go look anytime. I'm like, yeah, but they're not going to go search out your mom. <laughs> You know right. what I, mean? I don't know any teens that are interested. No, there's some no. girls. There was some girls there for girls a period. Maybe are a little more. You're right. I think <laughs> girls. It'll it, this and again as stories change. Mm-hmm. You know, as I was mentioning before, it, as my daughter gets older, that could change. I can see she's a little more. She's looking over my shoulder a little bit more mm-hmm. than my son has. So yeah, this could change with her. Well, the one thing I will say, Sandra, is that um, I was just talking about him this the other night when we were coming home. I said, you know, I try to live my amends to you now, Grady, and I I try to be on time for things and I don't mind driving because he'd made a comment about what a long day it was. And, you know, I was driving home at nine o'clock at night. We both had had a long day. And I said, it's really, it's my pleasure actually to do this now because before I never wanted to drive, Sandra, because, you know, I, I always wanted to have a cocktail or a drink or something. And um, driving or getting up early to take him to carpool, I didn't want that either because I was hungover. So driving is a really big way that I make amends to my son. Um, And so as we were talking, we were talking about a friend of his. And and this is what I'll say about being out and about about it. Um, He had a friend who was struggling with alcohol and drugs in school. And um, that friend contacted me at the end of the school year last year and wanted to have tea wanted to talk. Hmm. So um, I'm grateful that my son said, Hey, you know what? You should talk to my mom. That's powerful. Yeah. So I, uh, I, I felt humbled. I felt a little bit out of my comfort zone because, you know, this person has a mom, but there's a lot of other circumstances that I will not get into that. I was the person that, that she called. And I was so grateful that my son was not embarrassed Um, so I've only had a good experience with it. Um, we're in, you know, we're in the testing mode here. It's not over yet. Um, but yeah, I've not, I've not received anything that's been, um, like that we had to like do damage control or something. No, Mm -hmm. it's, it's all been, it's been positive, I think. And, um, and yeah, like you said, integration, fully Mm -hmm. transparent, honesty. These are the principles that we're practicing and I want to practice them with him as well. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's all I can do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. and age appropriately too, you totally. know, that's, yeah. that definitely comes into play. Yeah. Um, okay. So the next question I love, uh, I could talk about this all day. Oh, I hope uh, you do. Okay. Good. <laughs> I would love one on, on menopause and sobriety and drinking. I'm 48 and in perimenopause and I just want to hear women talk about it. I feel like I don't know enough about it and how alcohol sobriety can fit in. Well, <clears throat> so I can only obviously speak, speak from my experience and 
Um, and because I don't know what it feels like to drink through perimenopause because I didn't, um, I can only project. So uh, I know that alcohol heightens my anxiety, uh, yeah. proven fact. Um, so I can only imagine what a anxious mess I would be in right now if I were drinking through perimenopause. Um, uh, I also know that if I were drinking right now through perimenopause, I would be looking at all of the very traditional ways that medicine could fix me. Um, I would probably be considering, you know, surgery, just take it all out, you know, or I would really turn to pharmaceuticals. Again, I'm not against either of those things, but for me, um, I think being able to do this sober, I can look at more holistic ways to kind of, you know, get through this or minimize the uncomfortable parts of menopause or perimenopause. Um, no band-aids. Right. Through yeah. diet, through exercise, through supplements, you know, just more holistic ways um, to kind of calibrate the hormones. <laughs> yeah. So that's, yeah. So that's, well, that's it. You're kind of recalibrating everything, right? Like that's a great right. word for it. Calibration and recalibration. Like, and I feel like that's what we're doing in sobriety. Um, so perhaps I'm in perimenopause. I don't know. I still have my period. Um, I imagine I am, right? Is it just before you hit menopause? It yeah, it can yeah. be up to 10 years before you go through yeah. menopause. I don't have any significant symptoms. I got my hormone levels tested. I'm not in menopause. I know that. Um, so I don't have a whole lot to add here. But that whole part about recalibration just for sobriety and doing things like before I was the Band-Aid method. Mm -hmm. You know, let's just let this. I used to take three pills so that I could drink you know, because I was allergic right. to the histamines. I, mean, <laughs> I know that I would be, I would be in sitting in a doctor's office, having them address every single thing else, you know, like fix it all. Just don't tell me I have to stop drinking, you know, because that's got to be helping yeah. <laughs> perimenopause symptoms, mm -hmm. even if it was very clear that it wasn't. Um, yeah, right. I would, I would just be like hysterectomy. Sure. Okay. Let's, let's do it. You know? Right. Right. Well, at the end, I of would be more willing to remove body parts. That's crazy. I, would. I know. Drinking. I would, I would. I, I, at the end of my drinking, when I couldn't feel my left arm, it mm -hmm. was numb all the time. Um, when I was, you know, waking up in a pool of my own sweat, heart palpitations all the time, thought I was having a heart attack. Like I would go to the doctor so much that summer, 2014, I was the summer of 2014, the year before I quit drinking, my doctor saw me, I don't know, every week. And I would drive out and I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm having a heart attack. I feel mm -hmm. my, my arm, body parts are going numb. My hair is falling out. I'm erupting my skin. So I'd go to the dermatologist, like so much that I was like, something's wrong. I know something's wrong, but I don't know what's wrong. Right. Okay. I know what's wrong. <laughs> I know. Drinking like a fucking lunatic. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're going to yeah. go home and self-medicate all night until you pass out and black out and wake up hungover and do it all over again. That's what's wrong. 
Mm-hmm. That's what's wrong. And that was the last year of my drinking. I didn't do that all the time for 10 years straight, drink that way. Um, it was progressive, but I drank, I drank almost every night of the week for a decade. Um, it progressively got worse. And that last year, Sandra, with feeling those physical symptoms. Yeah. If I had been in perimenopause, well, if I was, whatever, whatever the definition is, I was in a serious situation that I was willing to just give me more medication to take so that all these symptoms can go away. Right. I wasn't into holistic. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, I mean, but I guess I, I guess I kind of was when she said, want to do an elimination diet. I was like, yeah, all right. I was open. I think kind of, I knew something wasn't right. You had 51% willingness. Right. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and I think that summer scared me so much. Right. Um, and my husband just kept saying, you should probably not drink as much and you should probably exercise. Mm. And I, I, well, no, <laughs> they're going to give me something for this. Don't you worry, Steve. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting a prescription right now. I know. Yeah. Yeah. That's why we have medical insurance, Steve. So <laughs> yeah. So that's my weird answer to that one. <laughs> right. But hopefully, uh, yeah, that, and we've done shows, uh, it, it, Jolene Park is again mm, yeah. a wealth of information on this too. If and you can work with her right now, I I can't even tell you the name of her program that she's running, but you can work with her almost one on one right now at a pretty low price. Yeah, um, so. Jolene Park Healthy Discoveries. She's been mm. on our podcast. She co-hosted this summer. She she's a well, yeah a wealth of information. Yes, yes. <clears throat> okay. So how do you talk to your kids about sobriety? So we kind of covered some of this Mm -hmm. already, but again, you know, I'm just going to go back to honesty, transparency. I mean, I get as honest as is appropriate, you know, for their maturity level. Yeah. Um, I reiterate facts, science, Mm -hmm. um, what alcohol, where alcohol took me personally, again, you know, trying and staying appropriate in the conversation. But um, I just try to be as transparent as I can be with my kids. Yeah, same. Absolutely same answer for me. And um, if he has any questions, then I'll answer them. Um, He's been talking about it more lately. Just being a junior is a whole new thing, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, kids driving and talking about that and talking about parties he wants to go to. yeah, just talking honestly about it. I don't, there's no other way to do it. But yeah. appropriate, like is it age appropriate? I'm not going to drop all this on a four-year-old, right? No. no. But he's 16 and it's his friends are doing these things and it needs to be talked about. Right. Um, let's see. How did you find your tribe of real life? Oh, this is good. How did you find your tribe of real life sober friends? This is like a favorite topic. I love mm-hmm. this topic. Um, effort. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, getting out of your comfort zone. Um, yeah, it takes talking effort. to strangers on the internet. Right. <laughs> talking to strangers on the internet, offering yeah. a coffee date to mm-hmm. a virtual stranger on the internet whom you know is in close proximity to you. Yeah. Yeah. Just find your, you'll know you. So for, I guess I'll back up. I say, you'll know. Uh, I found my in real life sober friends uh, through hip sobriety school 
and through going to women's meeting, uh, going to 12-step meetings locally. And it took a while because I didn't want any friends from the rooms. I didn't need that, right? Um, those were those people and I'm just visiting their meetings and I don't really know if I'm going to stick around for a long time. So I kind of kept everybody at bay for quite some time. But my first I would count as my in real life friend would be Natalie. Um, and she's been on our show, Natalie Fairbrook. And she was in hip sobriety school. And I saw that she lived locally and she had a good sense of humor. And she was writing about when she was traveling um, in a hotel. She was sitting in a hotel and she wrote this post that I just, it, I thought I like her. She seems like she doesn't take herself too seriously and that I want to get to know her. And so I asked her out on a date on a coffee date and we had coffee and the rest is history. Mm -hmm. But slowly I've done that, you know, people are contacting me from the unruffled recently, you know, and getting together for coffee when they're out on business trips and meeting people for meetings in another town because they're just here visiting. Um, I go out of my comfort zone and I think it's all an extension of what I've learned. Um, it's, it's, it's intuitive as well for me, but I think uh, an extension of the 12th step is to, reach out a hand to another woman who you know, shares your common problem. It, it feels good. Mm -hmm. And if you are in some, you know, uh, private, some say some secret uh, Facebook groups, put up a post. Hey, is anyone in my area that wants to meet for coffee? Um, a lot of groups have uh, documents or lists of, you know, where members of the group live. Maybe you can find people in your city. Um, you know, that's, that's another way to do it. If you don't, you know, if you don't go to 12 step meetings or if you don't go to any of the other modality, mm -hmm. you know, meetups and in real life meetings, um, do it that way. But you just, you, it does take effort. You have to, you have to fake a little braveness, even if you're, even if you're not feeling it, but I promise you that you at least have one thing in common. Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's, it evens your, your, it's an even, um, playing ground, you know, it's an even you, you have, because you have that commonality, even if you have different backgrounds or you have different circumstances, you will have something to talk about. And I would say if you're listening to this podcast and you're not in our secret Facebook group, we keep it secret so that it protects your identity. So that if you are not out and about, about your sobriety, um, out and about, out and loud, I don't know what I'm saying. If you're not out about your sobriety and you want to keep that on the down low, your, your secret's safe with us. Um, join the group, put out a call, like Sandra said, I put out a post and just ask like, is anybody living, you know, whatever your town is. And do you want to meet up for coffee? And it'll feel weird at first, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> but yep. then once you do it, it gets easier and easier. Mm -hmm. so. And the payoff far outweighs the awkwardness. I promise. I, I've it, not had a bad experience. No, mm -mm. same, same. And you will, and then it, you'll, it'll get so much easier the next time. And they'll know someone and they'll invite them to the next coffee date. And then all of a sudden you have a little gaggle, <laughs> you mm -hmm. have a coffee clatch or something, you know, you just get yeah. together once a month, once a week, whatever you, um, but you have to um, take action. Yeah. 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 So to wish for it. 
it's probably no. not going to happen. No, <laughs> right. Unfortunately, it takes some magical thinking. It's not going to work. But, uh, but just know that it's going to feel weird. It's going to feel awkward. I felt like I was on a first date with Natalie. Yeah. You know, she was late and I was like, oh, should I wait? Should I, I don't even know this person. And she had some stuff going on with the girl. She was taking care of business, you know, with her daughters. And, um, I'm really glad that I, that I, uh, you know, sat there uncomfortably waiting, sat there uncomfortably <laughs> waiting for this person, counting the minutes going, Oh my God, is she going to think I'm a weirdo? Oh my God. What are we going to talk about? We're going to have nothing. We don't even know her. Yeah. I know her now. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. It's real good. Uh, let's see. Okay. How to deal with unexpected strong alcohol cravings later on in sobriety, like maybe even like a year and a half in or something. What do you do when you feel like your tools aren't working the way they used to? Sandra, you want to address this? Um, my advice that I was given from very early on in my sobriety was that if something stops working, try something new. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that has carried me uh, uh, until now. And I, I fall back on that diligently um, because I am someone that does get bored and I sometimes need to get stimulated in a different way. And so I am always willing and open to try something else if something stops working. Because for me too, I always have to have something that I love more than drinking. I mean, to put it just very Mm -hmm. simply. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, I forget my tools sometimes. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Speaking of my friend, Natalie, she just laminated me a list. I love a laminator. She laminated me a list to put in my uh, little toolbox, physical toolbox that I carry in my purse um, to remind me when I have an anxiety attack or a a potential panic attack, what to do because I forget, you know, so maybe, I mean, you don't have to laminate something, but I carry a physical toolbox. I have physical things in there like oils like a, a smooth stone and obsidian that kind of grounds me that I, I really like uh, my a 12 step uh, or an AA token that's in there. Uh, a mantra card is in there. There's a weird thing I do with my lip, like just some lip stuff that I have that when I put it on, it's almost like a, I don't know. It just makes it, it's a balm for sure. It makes me feel better. Um, I use rescue remedy uh, drops put those in that little bag or the little uh, pastilles, you know, that you kind of suck on. So I have all these tools, uh, but I forget to use, I forget that the whole bag's in my purse even sometimes. So like you said, Sandra, just switch it up. If, if, um, if something's not working or if meetings aren't working or if journaling's not working, um, if your certain brand of fizzy water isn't working, try something new. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're just going to have to keep trying because it's up to you. Yeah. somebody else's job. So yeah, you have to, again, take action. You have to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Huh. All right. So All right. Uh, you want to g- g- go back and look at the, we got some questions mm. from Instagram. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So the first one, and we kind of touched on some of this already, but how yeah. did you become shameless enough to share your stories? Um, you talked a little bit about that when you were talking about 
being on social media and teenagers and husband mm-hmm. and all that, you know, I don't remember it being like a, like a <clears throat> defining moment or the spontaneous decision. Um, and maybe it was, I, I just don't remember it specifically, but Mm-hmm. Um, again, for me, it came from a really deep desire to be fully integrated because I had not been, my whole life had been very compartmentalized and, um, I just had this, like I said, the strong desire to be how I am in one place is how I am in all places how you do anything is how you do everything yeah, type of a need yeah. to be transparent. And I don't mean like a vomiting trauma or whatever, but just being, you know, this is, this is me, this is me on social media. This is me at home. This is me with my family. Mm-hmm. This is I'm integrated. I think intuitively I knew that too, Sandra, because I didn't want to be two separate things. I didn't want to have a secret name for my social media account. I know many people do that and that makes them feel safe. But for me, I I think without thinking about it, I think I intuitively knew I wanted to be integrated. I no longer, for uh, for me, a big part of of my past life before I quit drinking was being fake. I felt fake. What kind of mask can I put on today? Uh Yeah. I didn't want that. I didn't want that anymore. So, um, I remember like the first time I shared a couple of personal things about my drinking, it felt, I was nervous about it. And what is someone going to think? Or, you know, I cared a lot what other people thought. I don't care so much what people think now, Uh, but that has only come with time and practice and getting out of my own way. And then I get in my way again, I have to get out of my own way again. And so keep just practicing that. But yeah, I don't, I don't know that I became so shameless. I just became more honest. And, right. And like you said, integrated, I think is the word that's just so important. It's all together now. I don't feel separate. Um, but I was going to say, we, if, if listeners are new, I know we have a lot of episodes here now. They can listen to episode three for my story. Uh, and they can listen to episode two for Sandra's story. If they yeah. want to get to know us a little bit better and kind of what the impetus and you know, we did those a couple of years ago. So mm-hmm. even a lot has changed since we recorded that, I'm sure. Oh yeah. I'm sure. The listeners can go back and listen to those if they want to. Episodes two and three. All right. So the next one is please tell me about future tripping and how to stop doing it. <laughs> um so okay, so this has been a process for me, like like uh, most things are. Um, So, and I've talked about this before, but I used to think that worrying about something meant that you cared about it. (laughs) And if you didn't worry about it, then you Ah. you just didn't care about it. That's how I was raised. That's an interesting, that's interesting. Family of origin. Um, So I had to, through my program of recovery, I had to learn that there's a lot of things I don't have any control over. (laughs) Um, Does it mean that you can't prepare or have agency? You know, of course you should, but you can do all those things and still leave the future to uncertainty. 
um, and mystery. Uh, because, you know, worrying is really a futile means of control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, worrying, uh, that was like if the word that was said the most in my house. I'm just worried, worried. You worried me. You know, mm-hmm. worry, 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 worry. That was, that was imprinted on me at yeah. a very early age. And that if you worried, that was a form of love. Right. It means meant you cared about it. Right. <laughs> and um, I, 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 but it's also, I use that as a form of manipulation too mm-hmm. with people. I, I can look at that honestly now with the work that I've been doing recently. And I think that worry is a form of me wanting to tell you something without really telling you something. Um it's not direct. And, um, when Casey was dying, um, I didn't know she was going to die in a few months, but two months before or a month before she died, I was with her in the car and I said, I'm just worried about you. And she said, can, can I ask you a favor? I was like, sure. Anything. She said, can you stop saying that you're worried about me? And I was kind of shocked. And I was like, well, why? She says, because I feel like you know something that I don't. Mm-hmm. And when she said that, and I said, well, like, what do you, I don't even know. Like, what do you mean? And she was like, I feel like you're like talking to my husband or, you know, more about my diagnosis, or I feel like it's veiled. And I thought, whoa, that is not, I mean it with love. It's the word that I associated. So since that time, Sandra, like, when I, I try not to say that I'm worried, I do slip still sometimes, but it's really a practice. And worrying about the future, I have no control over the future. Like you said, you can have agency, you can do things to get yourself to the next level of something. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about trying to control future situations. Yeah, with your out of my control. <laughs> not that powerful. Right. No, not. <laughs> Yeah. And for me, when I was thinking about the question, I think future tripping is like anticipated anxiety. It's like I'm creating a situation. I'm creating anxiety is what I'm doing. Oh, for sure you are. I'm fueling it by thinking about it. So like I become, it's drama. It's also drama. I am future tripping to create a situation that I can talk about or be afraid about or, oh, poor me, what am I going to do? No. Not fun anymore. I used to really thrive on that, and I'm embarrassed. Well, I'm not embarrassed. I'm just—it's just what it is. I—that's what I—that was my way. And um, I know that you've talked about the word catastrophizing, mm-hmm. and I've never—I never really heard that word before until you and I started talking about it years ago. And I think that that's what I was doing, but I didn't know even the language for it. You know, catastrophizing, thinking worst case scenario, and then kind of working back from there. Instead of thinking best case scenario and working towards that, no, I'm, I'm setting up the catastrophe. I'm setting up the future trip. I'm setting up the disappointment or the fear or the anxiety or the panic. Mm-hmm. Or at least that's what you will see because, totally. you know, what you see in the world is, you know, what you're thinking is reflected back to you. Totally. And I think same as you, Sandra, working a program of recovery, whatever that looks like for others, for me, it's just a lot of little things that I have to do all the time, meditate and make art and go to meetings and plan my week as best I can, because I can't plan everything that's going to happen. 
you know, like last week I wanted to, I had a full day and then all of a sudden my son's wisdom tooth had a problem and he had to go to emergency to the dentist at, you know, six thirty in the morning, we're calling the dentist. The whole day is off. Right. We just had, but I felt fully capable to handle it. I wasn't catastrophizing. I wasn't said this is going to just screw up the whole day. And yeah, we had to reshuffle some things, but it's like, I didn't future trip it out so much that I was, um, frozen or incapacitated or couldn't deal with what was happening at the moment. And that is from having a solid firm foundation for a long time now, a long sustained time. Right. You know, it doesn't throw me off. It doesn't, do you remember? I mean, I remember like one thing could throw me off in the morning when I had a hangover. Oh, it was the end of the oh, world. Uh, oh, oh, for sure. For sure. And it was just like, well, screw it all. You know, I'd go back to bed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then everyone would pay as well. Mm-hmm. In my household, I would make everybody pay by my stomping or my huffing and puffing or my silent treatment. You know what I mean? Like I just, it just started breeding all of these other things. And I think when you start handling your shit and you start, I know they say that do the next right thing. Sometimes we don't know what that is, but you intuitively do start to know. Right. Once you can remove alcohol out of the equation, you do slowly come back to yourself and know what the next right thing to do is. So, um, yeah, that's my take on it. And I know that when I future trip, I'm like, Oh, hold on. That's like a little signal. Hold up, Mm -hmm. (laughs) slow down. Like this trip that I'm going on, um, or that I'm on, I guess when this is airing, I, I've been trying not to future trip so much. So Sandra that I haven't hardly done any research. (laughs) I'm just going to go and hopefully just have it be this lovely time. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, because if I think about the panic or if I think about how long the flight is and I'm going to be traveling for 14 hours, I could get really freaked out by it. I'm working really hard to just stay in the present moment that I have a lot of tools and a laminated card Natalie gave me and that I think it's going to be all right. Yeah. I mean, worst case scenario, I have to do like legs up the wall in a plane (laughs) and ask for ice to put, you know, in my hands and on my neck. I mean, I kind of know what to do. I just have to um, be ready for it. Be prepared. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Think, do you think one can use unruffle to make peace with food? I'm aware of overeaters anonymous, but it's funky. Um, so uh, we've talked about this often, but, um, food isn't, uh, one thing that, I I think I'm going to speak for you that neither you or I struggle with immensely. Like we know a lot of our listeners do. Um, But that doesn't mean that I don't also have to make peace with food. Um, So I, I think, yes, you know, I think that um, a lot of the tools that we talk about can be applied across the board, like staying present, staying mm-hmm. present with your food. Um, uh, I think, you know, um, that can help you um, have the potential maybe to know when you are content and satiated and when you can say, okay, enough. And again, I'm only speaking from just really personal experience and my personal experiences that I have not, um, 
I, I don't have the relationship with food, a complicated relationship with food that a lot mm. of a lot of people do. Yeah. Well, uh, I was just going to offer that. I, I remember an early recovery or an early sobriety. I, I met a woman at a 12 step meeting and I'd introduced myself and she was like, I'm so-and-so. And I was like, Oh, have you been coming to meetings for long? And she's like, actually, I'm not supposed to be here. <laughs> and I was thinking like, yeah, me either lady. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm not really supposed to be here either. And she says, I actually do OA. And I was like, I don't know what that is. And she told me it was Overeaters Anonymous. She said, but I have a hard time at those meetings. So I come to AA um, because it's the steps. And right. I like coming to this women's meeting because it's really powerful and you guys have great speakers and I can apply it to my program of recovery. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to offer that. I haven't done it. I don't have the same complicated, I don't have a complicated relationship with food either. But I know that we've had awesome guests on that have. And so I wanted to recommend to our listeners, um, Amanda Grace was on the show and Mm -hmm. on episode 54 and episode 116. So I'd highly recommend listening to those episodes because she does discuss that. And Ingrid Miller was episode 108. So they have way more to say on this topic and have more knowledge and great advice and um, experiences shared. And I would highly recommend that this listener, whoever wrote in or anybody listening that wants to know more about this to listen to those episodes. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Okay. So how, this is the next question. How does art contribute to healing? Is it the making or the sharing or both? Um, for me, very simply, I just, I thought that we can say things with art that we don't have words for. And that's kind of what I learned this summer in my training too. But I, um, I believe that we already know this stuff. I knew I started making art in earnest a year before I got sober. It was like I intuitively knew that it was going to do something for me. I did not know what. I didn't have any expectations for it. I had no goals. I wasn't like I'm trying to sell something or I want to get this. It was nothing. It was, it was where I just poured my feelings into and expressed myself to myself for a year. Now, I did share some of those things publicly very sparsely because I was nervous about it. And, but I think the sharing helped me find a community. Is what I wanted to say about it. I make it for me and sharing it has, has created uh, connections with other like-minded women and people. That's how I connected with Laura McCowan. She wanted a piece of uh, something I had done that she'd like. And I said, Oh, I'll mail it to you. She said, I would love to have that. And that created this connection for her and I, and um, I did that with Holly as well. She saw some things I was sharing on Instagram, made a connection with me and we did the mantra project together. So I think the sharing it is important to my story of recovery and how I tapped into these really strong ladies and then found everybody else after that when they started the home podcast and a secret Facebook group from there. Uh, but I would just say at a very just basic level, it, it heals me um, because I can convey things on a canvas or on a piece of paper or in a list even that... Um, feels honest and feels true and feels like it expresses um, how I'm feeling. Right. I was going to say that the sharing part, I think it's just another level of the expression, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You can express your, you can express on 
the page and never share it mm-hmm. and it doesn't devalue it. Absolutely. Um, you can share it and it doesn't make it more valuable. Totally. Uh, so it's just another level of expression, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, similar, you know, it's the agent of healing for me lies in the process. Um, so it's for me, it's the act of using all of my senses to do something constructive rather than destructive. Yeah. And, um, and last night I saw, I got to see where'd you go Bernadette, the movie. And (laughs) she reminded me again of the brilliant quote. Um, and she said it several times in the movie, Bernadette, you must create, or you are a menace to society. (laughs) I love Bernadette. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I relate to that. Uh, So yeah, again, construct being constructive rather than destructive. Um, that is that is that is healing and art for me. I love that, Sandra. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I, I hear um, Rich Roll's wife, Julie Pyatt. I think is how you pronounce her name. I hear her often talking about you know her full expression. Mm-hmm. And when I do this, this expression of myself and when I'm doing yoga, this expression of myself, when I'm making food, it's this expression of, I love that. And I kept thinking like art is just an expression of myself. Right. And I kept it really buried deep and dark for a really long time and letting it kind of slowly come to the surface, um, has been a gift I've given myself that I can finally tap in and listen to myself. So um, it's uncovered many things. I was thinking about this question. It's really could go, you could just go on and on and on because of painting a painting for me or doing a collage page. It's saying so much more than what anybody sees. And when you and I did the raw workshop with Amanda, I mean, you got that in there, right? I mean, it's like, we were all there. We all had stories and we expressed them on the page as an expression of ourselves. And I loved it so much. And there was like, you could do so much more work off of just one page. You could write an essay from that, right? Right. Well, and a body of work if you wanted to. And it reminds me of that quote from Richard Rohr. And he says, if you can explain it, it's not God. And so I feel that way sometimes about art. You know, if you, if you can explain it, it's not, that's, that's, that's not the, that's not what's necessary for the art. Yeah. Um, Sometimes it's just in the making and the expression and that's the personal healing for you. And it doesn't have to, um, it, it, it doesn't have to be relatable to someone else. However, it often is Yeah. without you even naming it. I love it. Yeah. Um, all right. Okay. Well, it looks like you have some questions that were directed just to you. I'm not going to answer all of them. I'll answer a couple. Okay. Just because for time and stuff, I don't want to like monopolize. I've got one, but you go ahead. Well, someone asked if I was going to talk about Morocco and about the trip. And I'm not going to talk about it on this episode because I'm going to talk about it on the next episode when I return. And yes. you and I are going to discuss that at length. So I'm, I'm going to save that. But someone asked me, how much are you loving your new studio? And do you miss the old one at all? And so my new studio, 
uh, it's still feeling new. <laughs> it's not <laughs> quite situated. I haven't put anything on the walls yet. Uh, it's still feeling new and I, I'm not super called to go in there yet. I've been trying. Um, but I think because the old one is still here, it feels like I'm cheating on it, you know, in my little pink studio. But this weekend I put up on social media that I we were giving it away for free, the studio. And so my husband was going to tear it down and I was like, no, 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 no. You cannot take a sledgehammer to that thing. I need oh, to so find. Weren't there, so the people that were going to take it for a meditation space decided not to? Uh, let's see who was going to take it for a meditation space. Oh, I thought there was a neighbor. So. Oh, thank you. Yes. Uh, no, she, she passed on it. My friend. Jen. Okay. Got it. She passed. Cause she's like, that's oh, kind of a pain to move it and whatever. And so when she passed on it, then my husband was going to destroy it. And I said, please don't, I need to find a home for it. So I put a post up on Instagram and got quite the response on mm. And it's in the process of finding a new home locally. Somebody would need to kind of have a flatbed truck and have sure. men that know how to do that type of thing and move the building. But um, I'm hopeful. I have six people in line for it. Ooh, and the first success. one, guess what she wants to do with it? What? She wants to make it a home for all of her typewriters. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> she has 13 typewriters. Oh, that's so amazing. So she's my friend. She's a farmer. She's kind of a kick in the pants. And she lives, I, I would still be able to see, I see her property right now from where I'm recording. I can see her property. She's a chicken farmer. She's in her early thirties and um, she's a performance artist. Mm -hmm. And what I'm going to tell you about her as an aside one that I think you will appreciate. She once went to a party. Our friend does big um, sculptures for Burning Man, um, mm -hmm. fire sculpt, you know, metal things that they have the fires in. So we went to his house for a party and an art show in one of his, he lives on an old chicken ranch where the chicken coops were turned into a gallery. And so they had a bunch of art there and sculptures. And she sang Jolene on the piano. Mm. And then she lit it on fire. Oh, that's <laughs> So this is who might get my studio. <laughs> so I said, when she came over yesterday, she like went underneath the building. She's like, this thing isn't, you know, uh, very stable. She's like, I said, I know that we're, we're getting rid of it. She said, this, this only screwed in with a couple of screws. She's like, it's amazing. It's still, you know, but she like has the know-how she moves. She does mobile chicken coops. She like, she's the right. Woman. She's the woman for this studio. Sounds like so, it. I'm hopeful that that goes to her. So she sent me pictures of all her typewriter collection last night. There's oh. one that does it like in kind of cursive writing. She has a oh, typewriter for that. She has one that's in German. Wow. I mean, they're beautiful too. So anyhow, I've, that's, that's, so now I don't feel so sad if the studio leaves because I know that it's going to be on someone else's property getting used in a way that a sounds life. pretty awesome. Yes. So that's my studio answer. Um, let's see. Someone asked, will you be, um, will your art for healing workshop be coming to Southern California or the San Diego area? And what I want to say about that is I, I got my certification that I can be a facilitator for this art for healing process um, earlier this summer. And uh, I'm working on a business plan and I'm drafting letters to pitch to the local um, rehabilitation facilities and shelters that are around uh, Sonoma County. And so then I'm thinking about taking my show on the road next year to a couple mm -hmm. of cities. And so that's kind of where that stands. But for the end of this year, I'm not doing much other than going to this workshop and traveling and getting a little quieter and trying to make work without having to 
show and tell so much. Um, I just need some time to process. I need to be in process. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I think I'll answer is, uh, someone asked like, how did I learn how to make a book or postcards? They wanted to know about the process, the technical part of it, the printing. And that's something for me as a creative that always kind of, um, thwarts me. (laughs) Like that's like the last thing I want to do. So I will definitely answer this because I know it seems mysterious. Like these things get made and how do you make them? And it's awkward to ask somebody, but, uh, I used Moo initially for my business cards and I love them mm-hmm. and I've had them, I've made them for a year. I change them around. Mine's a square format. Um, so yeah, moo.com and you can check mm-hmm. that out. They have lots of other things. And, They're great. They have stickers and mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And then uh, most recently I've been using Vistaprint because I've been making a lot of different postcards. Mm-hmm. Quality is just fine. It's not as thick card stock and it doesn't, you know, I haven't figured out how to make it a postcard on the back yet because I don't know how to do that, but <laughs> probably need to ask somebody, but, um, but Vistaprint has been good for just making bulk postcards of images that I have just from my phone. You know, you upload them and, and, um, Blurb is the other company I wanted to say for making my little book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used Blurb and I didn't know how to do it. I had to ask for help from the, the contact person that I had there at the company. I just sent them an email and saying, I want to make a book. I don't even know where to start. And that's how I started. <laughs> and I also had to ask my husband for help for formatting and doing some things with my PDF um, when I did my first gratitude book. And yeah, it was a lot of trial and error. I, it took me a long time um, to do my little 60 day journal that I have out right now. But yeah, I had to ask for help from my husband and from the people at those companies. And it was awkward and clunky and it's something I absolutely did not want to do. And it's the only way I knew I would get it done. So that's my answer to that. Uh, I also asked for help from like Kinko's. Originally I printed my book at Kinko's, you know, just went there and got, they did it for me. And I had to ask for help as well. I brought the file folder and a flash drive and you can pay them a little bit extra. I don't know if it's five or $10 and they'll format everything for you. Mm, nice. And they'll help you get things done. I was like, I'd much rather pay one-time fee to this guy who's going to set up my files right mm-hmm. than I have it. So ask for help. It wasn't that hard. I mean, getting over myself was the hard part of figuring out how to, how to ask for help, mm-hmm. which we just talked about recently. So right. I struggle with that. Um, and I still have more help to ask to do things. I'm, I've asked for help from one of our listeners that's helping me create an app. I don't know how to create an app, but I know that I want one and I want it with my artwork and I have some, you know, so I had to ask for help. And we had a call last week, Sandra, and I was like, well, can you do this thingy? Can you do it like, <laughs> you know, I have no technical terms. <laughs> and he was like, oh, you mean you want it to load and do that? I'm like, yes, what you said, <laughs> that's what I want. You know what I want. And he's a game developer. So he, he had, you know, the language for it. Right. And I think he knew after talking to me, like, she has no clue, <laughs> um, but I'm okay with that. I'm okay with asking for help now. So we'll see how it goes. I don't know. Um, but that's it. I think that's all I have for that. Right. Right. And I, I could add one thing to that is yeah. that often, you know, when you are asking for help for anyone for things like that, you, it's helpful to have examples of what you like. And mm-hmm. so that comes back to like, you know, stealing, borrowing, whatever, you mm-hmm. know, what, 
the aspects of things that you like, you like their, this website, you like how it's laid out, or you like the way somebody's something looks or, uh, yeah. you know, aesthetic or content. Um, that's a good, good, good thing to bring with you when you're asking for help. Like I want it to look like this. <laughs> I, I want it to it. do this. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I did that with a couple of apps that I currently use. I was like, I want it to be like this, but I want it to be pretty. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I want it to be nice. Yeah. I want yeah. it to look aesthetically pleasing, um, but it can be super basic. Right. So the, the, the problem, not the problem, the invitation for me was to keep it simple. Yeah. And I kept trying to come, well, we could add this and then maybe it should go to my website. Maybe we should promote these other things I'm doing. And I just realized I kind of had a, uh, a good night's sleep and wrote my morning pages. And I was like, no, all you really need is a simple thing. Mm-hmm. And we'll see what happens after that. Right. You know, maybe you need to 2.0 it at some point. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. What about your question, Sandra? You had a great okay, question. Okay. I do. I did have a great question. I'm going to read it. Um, I've been super curious about your relationship to stitching and sewing and how it has evolved over the course of your sobriety. I always think of the Louise Bourgeois quote, the act of sewing is a process of emotional repair. What are your thoughts around the creative practice of sewing, garment making, and emotional repair in sobriety? I love that question. And it was funny because I had already been writing about something just like that, using stitching as a metaphor. Um, uh, and so I'll share a little bit of that. Um, you know, if I think of it as a metaphor, each like observation or lesson learned or point, point, point of growth for me, is just another piece that I get to stitch onto like a beautiful tapestry that I'm creating, this one called life, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that I'm creating. Um, But to then to be kind of anchor it back into reality and even logistically, I have just personally grown to trust my intuition more and specifically my creative intuition as it pertains to how I can put together like colors and patterns um, in my garment making. And that's like steady, you know, it's mm-hmm. that, that base there is, is unwavering for me. Um, but I had to learn how to trust it. Uh, trust my creative voice, trust my yeah. creative style, you know, all of that. Um, but, but because that foundation is there, I can, stay tethered to it and then experience all kinds of freedom in my creation or in my making. Um, you know, that, that concept, that idea is like that says, you know, you have to know the rules to break them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's that kind of, it's kind of following on that, that idea. Like if I stay uh, kind of tethered to this foundation that I know, that's my intuitive foundation, then I have all kinds of places to explore and I can trust that. I think that's so important, Sandra, that whole part about trusting it. Mm -hmm. Because I think we can dismiss it a lot. Um, Question ourselves, stuck in this perfectionism or whatever, yeah. I started doing a shape yesterday and I was like, I'd gone away from the shape because I saw some other artists do it. Um, that the artist doesn't own the circle. 
No. <laughs> so for me, I have to always remind myself like, oh, you went away from making circles for a while. And this weekend, it's just it's everywhere. I went to a, an Ed Hardy art exhibit. I went to the library and was looking at beautiful books and about you know, art books. And I was thinking, it's been around forever, the circle. Nobody owns the freaking circle. No. Trust that your body, you want to make this, you want to make it how you want to make it and just trust it. Mm -hmm. it'll just evolve. And I look at, I'm looking at work differently and I'm thinking about, I need to trust what I'm drawn to. Right. I need to trust what I want to make. Just right. like you. I love that. That's so, yeah. To trust yourself. Yes. Mm, yes. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to end it there. That's it. That was it. so fun. That was fun. Thanks to all the listeners that sent in questions on Facebook and Instagram. And this is a fun episode. Yeah. We're not going to do a specific toolbox, but I think no. there's probably a lot of tools laced yeah. in everything we talked about. For sure. For sure. And I will talk to you next week, I guess, in podcast terms, podcast time, all I about my trip. I know. I cannot wait. In the meantime, mm. enjoy your trip. I will. <laughs> I will. And I can't wait to wear my fabulous um, jumpsuit, silk jumpsuit. Oh my gosh. I cannot wait. I can't I get wait to ride to a camel. I'm hoping to wear it when I'm riding the camel out in the desert when I go to the desert that night. It seems That's like desert thing. wear, doesn't it? I think so. I mean, it's <laughs> For sure. <laughs> Stay tuned on Instagram. If I have, um, if I have any kind of connectivity, you know, you're going to be seeing some shots from Morocco. Just know that business right now. It's happening. Can't wait. <laughs> All right, my friend, I'll talk to you when I return. Okay. Bye. The Unruffled Podcast was created and produced by Sandra Primo and Tammy Salas. Our show is edited and mixed by Steve Hecht. Original music composed and performed by Caitlin Schumacher. Original artwork created by Tammy with the help of graphic designers Chris Aguirre and Amy Lanier. Thanks for listening. <laughs>